That was fast. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let's begin now by praying together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you today for who you are, marvelous essence, that you are love and you are righteousness and justice and you're all powerful and all knowing. We want to thank you also, Father, for the fact that you never change. We thank you for the fact that you are eternal life and that you, in fact, have shared that for all who believe in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, today we also want to take a moment to pray for the President and the First Lady of our country. We pray that they would both be healed completely of the virus that, that they have, the scourge in our country for this year. We pray also this morning, Father, that we would be guided and ministered to by the Holy Spirit for all that will be going on today, both in the singing and in the message of the Word, and also particularly participation in the Lord's Supper today. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Good morning again, everyone. A few announcements this morning. First of all, we this month will be featuring and sponsoring Grace Bible Church in Pakistan. They're uh, an incredible. You should visit their website, like even if you have before, because they're always growing. There's always new things going on. It's incredible. Now, a couple of years ago, they finished their church building, and now they've got a new building for their, I think it's for their uh, preps, whatever they call it, their little high school. What is it? Anyway, it's that, and uh, there's pictures of it, and and uh, once again this year, um, they will be sponsoring what they call the Christmas care packages. We've been doing that with them for a number of years, and we'll be doing that with them again this year. Um, this is this, their outreach to the young people, both in their academy and in the surrounding villages. Um, this year, they've set a goal of $12,000. They actually exceeded that last year, if you recall. They had set it at twelve, and then they had to make it seventeen because they wanted to serve more kids, and they had got the money coming in, which is fantastic. They have, again, a Grace Academy. They have a little over 200 students, and they put together a package for them, $15 each. And let me just, uh, I know most of you know this, but I'm just going to refresh everyone's memory with what's in the packages, if I can find that. Should have had it open already. All right. Yeah, for the uh, Grace Academy English Medium School students, that's a mouthful, they're going to put together a fresh new uniform, a winter sweater and hat, new leather shoes, and two pairs of warm socks. I think I'm going to apply to that academy. That sounds pretty good. But we don't really need the winter sweater and hat around here. Every child in the outlying and remote villages, as well as the Grace Academy school kids, which is separate, Younger kids, they will receive uh, fruit of the spirit, coloring pages, and a box of crayons. Also, a warm winter hat and socks, and a toothbrush, toothpaste, and a big Christmas meal for everyone who attends that meeting. So, um, as always, please keep that in prayer, and uh, we would like to support them the best way we can. Um, they do uh, the the price for the uh, academy student packages is fifteen dollars each. The village packages for the younger kids is $7 each, and they, of course, do have travel expenses that are included in that. All righty, um, this is subject to change, but I think for this we usually have you write checks out to GBC Pakistan directly, and then you can indicate if you'd like to direct it to the student package or the village package, you can indicate that in the comment section of your check. Uh, also, as always, you can go on to... Um, onto PayPal, and again there, uh, just indicate, there's a space for notes at the bottom of PayPal, just indicate that you want it for this um, Christmas care package fundraiser. Deadline for donations, as always, December 1st. want to continue to ask you to keep in prayer the homeless ministry of Bud and Kim Dungan. They could always use uh, support financially, and again, if you want to support them financially, it's the same thing. You know, either you can send a check and put their, their um, the ministry, homeless ministry. You can also go on, um, on PayPal and also put it in there. 
I do want to mention something, and that is that we, uh, as a policy issue, we don't have fundraisers for the church, okay, for the church. But we do for other ministries, okay? We've done that many times. So I want to make sure you understand the difference here. This is not a Grace Lighthouse Bible Church fundraiser. It's a fundraiser in the support of the missions overseas, okay? Um, Since this is the first Sunday of the month, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper today at the end of our service. And with that, let's begin the message portion of our service this morning. title from this morning's message comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, which is where I'd like you to turn right now. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons must be men of dignity. Deacons must be men of dignity. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, keep that word in mind, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must... Likewise, note that word carefully, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, or as we saw last week, that's the same one woman man as we saw for the elders, for the the overseers, and be good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you recall, last week we were in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and there we examined the qualifications of the office of overseer. The office of overseer. We saw that these qualifications address the character of the man And then also the proper behavior that would result from that proper character. And of course, it's the behavior that's observable. We'll see that again today with the deacons. It's the same principle, that the issue really is the character of the man, but also that the the way in which they can evaluate it, test, as it says here, um, is by observing behavior. Because you can't observe character inside somebody, but you can observe the outward behavior, speech, all of those other things that are reflective of the, what's going on inside. Um, in verse 8, though, this morning, we are going to, of course, shift here, we saw it, to a new topic. So, so in other words, verses 1 to 7 was about the elders. Verses 8 through 13 are about the qualification for deacons, as we see. So um, it's related, okay, but it's different, okay? It's it's qualifications for deacons related to the qualifications for elders, but in a new category, deacons. But you may have picked up on this already, and we'll go through this, that the requirements for deacons closely parallel the earlier qualifications for overseers and elders. I'm going to take a look at that. Now, in verse 8, we saw that Paul switches to a new topic, the qualifications for deacons. He goes through 8, 9, and 10 with that. And as in the case with overseers, these qualifications emphasize the character of the person as well as observable behavior. But then in verse 11, he makes an abrupt change. He turns from the deacons to what is, what is called the women. We're going to look at that in some detail today. He turns from the deacons to the women, I put that in quotes, in verse 11. Notice that. Then in verses 12 and 13, he goes back to the male deacons. So if you can picture that, qualifications here of male deacons, one, one verse on the women, and then two more verses on the male deacons, if you can picture that. So in other words, the, the interesting thing about that is that the qualifications related to the woman, the women, are like smack dab in the middle of the qualifications for male deacons, which are this way and that way. Very interesting. We're going to see why that is this morning. All right. So that's the broad outline of verses 8 to 13. You have verses 8 to 10 presenting qualifications for the deacons. That's masculine. In verses 8 to 10, 
Then in verse 11, qualifications of women. And then in 12 and 13, he goes back to the issue of the qualifications for deacons. Now, when we were reading this this morning, I told you to pay attention to one word. Anybody remember what that word is? Likewise, exactly. The word likewise. It's going to really frame things in the proper way to understand what that word is really signifying. Likewise. The Greek word, I won't give it to you, but it means in the same way. In the same manner. So, what it's talking about is that, for example, with the, with the qualifications of elders... Okay, and there are certain ones, and they form the behavior and character. And then in the, in the same manner, qualifications, but a new category. Can you see that? Deacons. So there's something the same and something different. And that's what this expression means. It means in the same way or in the same manner. It introduces something new because deacons are a new category, not the same as elders. But the fact that it's likewise in the same way, in the same manner, indicates it's closely related to what came before it. Qualifications of deacons are closely related to the qualifications of the elders. I want you to keep that in mind. That word likewise means something new, closely related to that which came before it. In the same way, in the same manner. By the way, we find that same word in 1 Timothy 2.9, where you had where you had the men praying, and then it says likewise, and there were some things that all the women had to adhere to, like in their manner of dress and so forth. Same word. Also, we're going to see in a moment that it's the same word that's found in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, as well as verse 6. And in these cases, it marks a transition from men to women. From men to women. In the same way, Likewise. And let's go to Titus 2, 2 to 3, so we can see this. We'll see this transition. It's really clear from one verse to the next. Let's go to, go to Titus chapter 2, verse 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 2. This is all going to help us quite a bit when we get to verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. Older men ought to be temperate, dignified, sensible, Sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. So again, that word likewise, here, as is going to be the case in verse 11 when we get there, it's a transition from the men to the women. It's in a like manner, meaning that they're very similar, and we're evaluating the similar things, But there's a new category. Obviously, the women is a different category from men. Even today, in 2020, in the United States of America. All right, so armed with this information, it's going to really help us. Because we're going to see parallels here. We're going to see parallels between the qualifications of elders in verses 2 to 7. Because likewise, we have the qualifications of deacons in verses 8 to 13. But also, we're going to find this word again in verse 11. And that's going to say there are some parallels here in verses verses 8 to 10 with verse 11. So I want you to think about that. You had the elders, you had a list of qualifications, and then you have the deacons coming on down next. And then likewise, in a similar manner with a new category, deacons, we have a bunch of qualifications that are very similar. And then within the category of deacons, or right next to it, is the category of women. And then it's in like manner also. All right? It means there are a lot of parallels between the characteristics, the qualifications for the male deacons, and the qualifications for the women. Then it goes back to the male deacons in 12 and 13. All right, so let's check this out now. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise. Likewise to what? Elders. Deacons, likewise, in the same manner, must be men of dignity. Not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain. Again, the deacon, that word deacons now, introduces a new class that's closely related to the overseer. Yes, I'm repeating, because I want you to get in this thought pattern. All right, Different, deacon, Different from elder, closely related in terms of qualifications. 
Now, when we're about the deacons, when we see that word, the Greek word, that Greek word from, for deacon, diakonos, used in a great variety of ways in the New Testament. Now, we tend to associate it with the office in the church, but as a matter of fact, it's used much more often, meaning other things. It's more informal a lot of times. And if I were to generally explain what the word means in these, all these other places, by the way, it's used for the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to serve, not to be served. It's, Paul uses it for himself many times, and it's translated minister there as well as a group of people that were serving the church in different ways. So it generally means anyone who performs a ministry of service to the church. Generally speaking, that's what it means. Anyone who performs a ministry of service to the church. Okay, the word diakonos, it's cognates, that means the ones that are similar, but they're verbs, um, all point to this. They all have this in common. It has to do with performing a ministry of service to the church. Now, of course, when we think about the position of deacon, that's true, right? Isn't it true that deacons perform a ministry of service to the church? Absolutely. However, there are many other people that Paul talks about in the New Testament epistles that also provide a ministry of service to the church. You know, there's a woman named Phoebe in in Romans 16, chapter 1, and has this word with her. Diakonos, meaning she had this special service that she performed for the church, for example. All right. So that's the word generally and specifically. But yes, here it has a technical meaning. The office in the church. Deacon. Now, deacons were similar to overseers. Remember, in the same way, in the same manner. Why? What's the similarity between deacons and overseers? They both served as leaders for the church. That's what makes them different category right, from other people who serve, is that both the elders and the leaders, elders and the deacons, are leaders in the church, okay? That carries with it, as you might imagine, a set of qualifications, as well as the need for them to be worthy of the position in terms of their character and behavior. So we'll see that. We've already saw it last week with the elders, but we're going to bring on in the deacons this week. Now, even though they were similar in that they both serve as leaders for the church, the fact is that they serve in different roles. You can have different leaders that serve in different roles. As a matter of fact, that's, as a matter of fact within the package, as you were, of elders, the, the board of elders, or however you want to place that, there are different functions. Like, for example, um, there's, in, our, in our congregation, all right, we have a person who is on the an elder who also really the specific function is to teach. That's me. We have, we have another person whose specific function has to do with music and internet. And another one who has to do with finances and, and overall administrative things. And another person who has to do with um, the, the practical matters of the, of the church. Including today, um, organizing the ushers for the Lord's Supper. Okay, and that's Jack. So we've got one office, but several roles. Now you can translate that over and say that's a similar issue when it comes to the deacons. Different role. And generally speaking, we have the elders who supervise the work, and they appoint deacons to lead in certain specific areas of service. Still as leaders. Okay, different, different function, different roles, but all leaders in the church. Okay, with that, now I, I'm going to um, come forward now and give you similarities and differences in the qualifications for elders and deacons. Now, hopefully, um, for most of you, verses 1 to 13 are on the same page, more or less, or between the two pages you can see. If not, my apologies ahead of time. All right, I'm just going to say some things about the qualifications of elders and deacons, some of which are the same for both offices and some of which are different. Now, that's, that's really important. Why? Because there's the likewise. There is a different category, but some of the similar qualifications. First of all, both deacons and overseers must be dignified, worthy of respect, lead a well-ordered life, as we saw last week for the elders. That's something that has to be in there for both deacons and overseers. They all, why? Because they're leaders. They have to be dignified. People have to follow them. They have to be worthy of respect. Remember, both inside among the members of the church, and also remember we saw outside. They have to have that respectability, both elders and deacons. It's interesting, too, that there's a prohibition that they have in common, 
And it's drinking to excess. It's interesting that it's for both the elders and the deacons. Why? Well, like we see, uh, if you were to go to Ephesians, don't have to do that, Ephesians 5.17, you would see that drinking to excess means dissipation. What's dissipation? The breakup of order. I hope that's a descriptive term. If you think about, unfortunately, people in your lives who abused alcohol and other drugs and other substances, they, for the most part, they were, they lived dissolute lives. That, I'm not, that's a more on a moral judgment, but it's just the fact that their lives were kind of haywire, splintered. They weren't really living a, a, a organized, well-ordered, respect life. Okay. It's unfortunate, but that's just the fact. That's why that, that's in there, because that would not be a suitable package of behavior for either an elder or a deacon in leadership in the congregation. So that's similar. There's a couple of things that are already are very similar between the qualifications for deacon and the qualifications for elder, worthy of respect, not drinking to excess. There's one other one that has to do with a prohibition, and that is warnings about money. Again, this is something in common for both elders and deacons. They both have to watch themselves when it comes, and specifically when it comes to managing the finances of the church. That's something that that. that both the deacons and the elders have some responsibility for, and therefore they have to be uh, honorable, have the right ability to be trusted with the, with the money of the church. It's worded a little differently here between the overseers and the deacons. For the overseers, we see it's free from the love of money. For the deacons, not fond of sordid gain. It's a little different, but related. Why? Because free from the love of money has to do with general attitude, all right, but here, fond of sordid game, as we'll see, has to do with certain behaviors that are really bad for somebody who's in charge of the finances to engage in. We'll see that in a minute. Now, there's one category category of uh, or, or qualification that is only said of the deacons, not said of the elders, and that is that the deacons must not be double tongued. We'll see what that means. You can imagine. I mean, picture, picture a man that has one tongue going this way and the other tongue going that way. And you kind of get an idea what they're talking about, okay? So in other words, and why would that be? Well, we, we don't know for sure, but one can imagine that, that the, the deacons would have a lot of uh, everyday contact and managing different people on a daily basis. But you can imagine if, if, the, if a deacon says one thing about, a, you know, about whatever to one person and then the opposite to another person. Can you see how that would create havoc, chaos? They'd quickly lose trust in the man. So, but that, that's only for the deacons is that mentioned here. The deacons must not be double-tongued. And there's no parallel in the qualifications for overseers. Look at um, no, one more thing. Um, there's two um, characterizations of the, de- of the elders that are not qualifications for deacons. We saw double-tongued. That's for the deacons, not mentioned for the elders. But there are two that were mentioned for the elders that are not here in the list for the deacons. And that is hospitality and the ability to teach. That ability to teach is important. We'll see why that is. What it's telling us is that elders are the ones who teach, not deacons. So that's, that's an important distinction to make. And hospitality. Apparently, at least in the, in the early church, that was seen as something that the elders were responsible for. Now, we know from example in Romans 12 that all of us are supposed to be hospitable. But this is a specific quality that's featured, emphasized when it comes to the elders. Not mentioned in the list of the deacons. But these two, hospitality and the ability to teach. Look at verse 9 now. But holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, and let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Notice that deacons must hold firmly to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. We'll see more about what that means, but I want you to notice that, that the deacons and the overseers, okay, at, look at verse 10, these men must first be tested, let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. And we saw it beyond reproach earlier for the elders. There it is. That's something that they both have as, as qualifications on both lists. Both the deacons and the elders must be above reproach, meaning they can't be credibly accused of something that would be 
a scandal or, or uh, clearly not in keeping with what one would expect from a leader. They must be above reproach. Now, it's interesting that there's a couple of things that are mentioned up above for the overseers that are not found in the list of deacons. And it's not, they're required not to be pugnacious. Remember, that was always spoiling for a fight. That's something that the elders are point, have, you know, focus on. Don't be like that. Instead, be gentle and peaceful. We don't see anything like that in the list of deacons. The point here is that there are a lot in common and some differences. And you have to notice both those things. What that's, tell, what's that's, what that's telling us is that there are certain characteristics that, that must be part of both tasks, both roles, both positions, because there's common qualities, and then there are some that are different from one another. And those are specific to that office. I want to just see that generally, because that's important. Under, now, yes, are the specifics important? Of course they are. But I want you first to see that pattern. All right. Now, we just got through verse 10, okay, with the deacons. And uh, verses 12 and 13 is when Paul goes back to the male deacons. And we know verse 11 is sitting there in the middle. So for now, we're going to just look at verses 8 to 10. So please go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain. Um, These are, again, almost all in common except for that double-tongue. That's specific here to the deacons. What does that mean? Well, it's the tendency to deceive others with one's words. Lying. Okay, but a particular kind of lying. Because you want some people... To believe something that's not true, okay? That's a particular kind of lying related to leadership. You know how it is. There are people like parents do this. Dads are famous for this. When they're with one kid, man, you're, I love you better than anything in the world. You're my favorite. Then you're out with the other kid. You know what? You're my favorite, right? That's double tongue. Now, it's, perhaps you could see some reasons for it with being a father or a mother. Although, really, it's not the best thing to engage in. Much more serious when it comes to leadership in the church. It's the tendency to deceive others with one's words. And again, you can see how that would be a really um, disqualifying characteristic, particularly for for deacons. Notice that expression, fond of sordid gain. I want to give you some specifics about what this is talking about. It's not talking about ill-gotten gains generally. So in other words, it doesn't mean that, now this is bad, but it's not talking about this. It doesn't mean that there's some way in which the, the deacon is conducting business outside, right, that you might say, that's a little fishy, although that's a problem. But here it's spoken specifically about inside the church. The word embezzlement, if you know what that means, I had to look it up again. But um, embezzlement just means taking money that's been entrusted to you and then using it for your own personal use. You can imagine how that would break up the unity in a church if one were to find that the person that you're trusting with the finances for the community instead is pocketing some of the money for his personal use. That would be really difficult to manage in a congregation. By the way, example, exhibit one, Judas. You know about Judas? He's called a pilferer in John chapter 12, meaning he, he was in charge of the money and he would take some out for his own use, and then the rest he would spend on the poor. That's a perfect illustration of what's, what the issue here is, fond of sordid gain. Now that suggests, of course, that one of the duties envisioned for deacons was handling the church finances. All right, let's continue in verse 9. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The mystery of the faith... By the way, that's a really profound subject in Paul's epistles. We're not going to be able to really study at all the the places where Paul uses that expression mystery because it's a big subject, okay? it's, It's talking in particular about things that the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to Paul that had never been revealed before, all right? Mystery. And in fact, that's the definition of a mystery. It's, It's formerly hidden knowledge, things that no one knew, Okay, until it was revealed, but it now has been revealed. All right. One mystery is the fact that Jews and Gentiles are now in one body together in Christ. That was a mystery 
wasn't understood or even known about in Old Testament times, or even during the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, revealed after, again, Jesus Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father. He comes down and he teaches Paul, reveals things to Paul, and it's related to the fact that Jesus is now in his glory and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's revealing new revelations, primarily about the church and about the implications of his death and resurrection. We're never found in the Old Testament, never found in the Gospels, revealed to Paul. Formerly hidden knowledge that has now been revealed. Notice that it says the mystery of the faith. Tells you what here the mystery is pointing to. The content of what is believed. That's not faith. It's not the mystery. It's a mystery how John ever believed in Christ. It's not that faith. It's the faith. The body of knowledge that he's pointing out. The content of what is believed. And in particular, the mystery of faith refers here to the mystery of the gospel. Mystery of the God. We don't think about it, but the, but the gospel message that was revealed to Paul was had things about it that had been mysterious, but they were not known before. You know, I mean, until really, if you look at the apostles and they're at the and they're seeing the crucifixion, and well, John saw it, and they all knew about it, and then you had the resurrection. They didn't understand all the meaning of it. They really didn't. Um, they, if they had understood it, for example, if Peter had understood it. He wouldn't have been so vehement with the Lord saying, I am not, basically, I'm not going to let you go to the cross. If he really understood that, that this was the place of maximum glory for the Father, where the sins of the world would be dealt with, he never would have said that. So there were things that they didn't know about. There were th- if you read the early Acts uh, chapters, you'll see the same thing. The issue there is, you know, Jesus Christ is your Messiah, and you didn't know that, so you crucified him, Right? But that, that's particular for the Jews. But there were things that were revealed to Paul about the mystery of the gospel. The things that nobody knew about until they were revealed to Paul. Now, the, this means that God had a plan to, re, to save people. And it was all going to be done in his son, Jesus Christ. However, that was revealed in history. In other words, it was revealed, first of all, when Christ was here and he died and was risen from the dead, and then revealed more so after Jesus Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father, and he came down and he revealed new information to Paul. All right. Notice then the phrase, with a clear conscience. With a clear conscience. Holding to the mystery of the faith, the gospel. It's now been revealed information that was kept hidden. With a clear conscience. With a clear conscience. And as we saw before, whenever you see the word conscience, not whenever, but in Paul's writings, particularly in the writings to to Timothy and Titus, what he's talking about is behavior that should be lining up with what you believe. Remember when the opponents started behaving contrary to to the solid doctrine, that's when they behave badly, and that's when... Their conscience got seared, and that's when it destroyed their faith, the content of what they believe. And that's what this is talking about, saying behavior that matches up with what you believe. Okay? A clear conscience, then, would be behavior in keeping with the knowledge of the mystery of the gospel. All right? For example, now that you understand that you're in Christ and Christ is in you, that ought to revolutionize your behavior. All right? Similarly, now you understand your sins have all been forgiven, which, by the way, is something that was revealed, wasn't known to the Old Testament saints, because, it, because they had to keep going to the temple and sacrificing animals in order to be forgiven, pointing forward to Christ, but it was revealed in time after Christ died and rose again. So once you know that, your behavior ought to be in keeping with it. Once you understand that God in Christ has forgiven you of all your sins, then your behavior ought to be what? Forgiving your brother and sister. That's the connection between what you believe and how you behave. Now, notice in verse 10. These men must also be tempted. Tested. These men must, they must also be tempted too, but that's another story. These men must also first be tested. Who? The deacons. They must first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So it's interesting. This is this testing. What was it? Well, it wasn't what we think of today as like a formal examination. You know, when I, when I became 
when I was ordained, right, there was this formal examination. Some of you were there. And it's this process where you had all these other pastors and they could ask you any question they wanted. And it was in front of hundreds of people, you know. That's a formal examination. That's not what's talked about here. Instead, it's talking about certain, remember, certain qualities, certain behavior patterns, and they would be observed. By who? They would be observed by the congregation on a day-in and day-out basis. After all, you can't put somebody up and say, can you describe your behavior for me in a formal examination? Do you think that would be accurate? No, not in most cases, right? Instead, what? You have to observe the behavior of the man on a day-in and day-out basis. Both the congregation and the elders would be observing the behavior of candidates for the office of deacon. All right? So you can't hide who you really are all the time, like Abraham Lincoln said, right? You can fool all the people some of the time, some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And that was, that was, that's why they were observed for a while, and that everybody in the community, including the elders, was doing that, so that they understood at the end, well, that was their behavior. Is that above reproach? Yeah, it looks like it is. Or no, it isn't, and therefore we can't have this guy as a deacon. Now, what did, remember, beyond reproach or above reproach just means, they, remember we saw this with the elders, it's free of any legitimate charge that could be leveled against them of improper behavior. Okay, that's above reproach. If that all fell into line, they were proved as the genuine, real deal to be a deacon. That word tested, dokimas, basically came from the idea of precious metals like gold being tested in order to be approved as genuine. 100% pure, all right? Now, no man is 100% pure, but it's the same idea of being genuine. This person, his, line, his behavior lines up with what he claims to believe. He's, his, his behavior is, 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 is consistent and so forth. Then he's approved. All right. So look at verse 11 now. Now we get to verse 11, the women. Women must... Likewise, oh, there's that word again. What does it mean? It means bringing up a new category, but has a lot in common with what came right before it. Women, obviously, is a new category from male deacons, symbol as we saw in Titus 2, right? From the men to the women. However, as we're going to see in a moment, the qualifications here are very similar between the women in verse 11 and the male deacons, particularly in verse 8. And I, that's really significant. And we're going to see why in a little bit. So there's that word likewise. New category. Okay. Very similar to the category that preceded it. Again, introducing a new category likewise. All right. That is very similar to the category which preceded it. Okay, what, is, what am I saying in plain English? The women referred to in verse 11 are very similar to the deacons referred to in verses 8 to 10. With, you know, some differences because they're different category, if you can put it that way. All right. Or to put it another way, and I kind of like this one. Do you ever remember in school, if you ever took, uh, like, standardized tests, and they would have analogy, like, puppy is to dog as uh, kitten is to cat, right? Well, we have that here, only it's a little different, it's not cats and dogs. It's as the male deacon is to the elder, remember, likewise, we saw that in verse 8. Would that mean the male deacon has a relationship to the elder, different category, but a lot in common? So too, the women in verse 11 are to the male deacons, different category, but they have a lot in common. All right. All right, so again, let's pay close attention now to the list of qualifications for the women in verse 11. And let's see if there are some similarities as well as differences from the, cate- from the qualifications of the men in verses 8 to 10. Now you might be saying, why is he laboring over this so much? Well, it all comes down to that word women. Why? Well, because in the Greek, the word gune means either woman, as you know, females, or it can mean wife. All right. Because of that, one has to sort out which it means here. In verse 11, is Paul referring to the wives of deacons or is he referring to women that have some similarities and difference, differences 
to the function of deacons. Those are our choices. Is it the wives or is it women who serve in a different capacity but have a lot in common in the qualities that they need with the deacons? That's our choice today. All right. Now, you may have come in with a preconceived idea about it. I get it. So did I. All right. But be open-minded as we go through this this morning. Well, I think we'll end up in a good place. So, because that word can mean either women or wives, then we have to sort out which is it in this verse. And by the way, you can make a good case for either one. Let me just say that right out now. You can make a case for either one. This is not necessarily a slam dunk one way or the other. So what does that mean? It means it won't work for the pastor. <laughs> no. But what it means is that now you've got to study in context, right, to make a decision, make a judgment about which it is. Because it, be, it has to be one or the other. Right? Basically, it's either the wives or it isn't. All right. Now, as you can probably maybe figure out, um, I think the translation women fits context better than wives. Why? Well, Notice that there's an abrupt change here from the male deacons to the women in verse 11. Yet, look how closely the qualities mentioned in verse 11 for the women parallel those for the male deacons in verse 8 and 9. All right, now I'm going to show a table in a second. Okay, again, the qualities that are listed for the women in verse 11 are very parallel both in terms of what, what's there and even the order in which they're listed as the qualities for the male deacons in verses 8 and 9. Let me show that to you. I, I apologize. If that's tough to read, I apologize. But it was really important to put it on one page so that you can see both the, all the similarities and the fact that they're all in the same order between verses 8 and 9 and verse 11. Let's see this. Okay. So we have deacons in the left column, women in the right column. Deacons have to be men of dignity. Women have to be dignified. Can you see that's the same? And it's first for both. Men have to be not double-tongued. This has to do with their speech. Women must not be slanderers, gossips, malicious. That has to do with their speech. Can you see those are very common to both in the same order? All right? Dignity, not be dignified, but watch your tongue. Okay? Then we have for the men not abusing wine or money. And then we have a more general characteristic that really is the same in terms of the character, which is temperate. Finally, we have the mystery of the faith for the men and faithful in all things for the women. So you've got these four different qualities that are really very similar, if not identical, between these deacons in verses 8 and 9 and the women in verse 11. Hmm. Now, of course, there's differences, too. All right? There are definitely differences. Look at, uh, look at verses 12. Verse, look at verse 12. We're going to get to this in a moment. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. That's not said about the women in verse 11. Can you figure out maybe why? Why wouldn't it be said about... Why wouldn't it say that the women cannot, should be one woman men? Because they're not men. There's another reason, too, which we'll see in a minute. Notice, good managers of their children and of their households. Again, not said about the women in verse 11. I find that interesting, by the way. I find that interesting because while the women can't be the husbands of one wife, they can't be a one-woman man, they are involved in the management of children. And yet, that characteristic is not mentioned in verse 11. That, to me, is kind of interesting. All right, so again... Differences between the women and the men here, male deacons must come on, must first be tested. That's not said either about the women. All right, they must be one women, one women men. Not said about the women in verse eleven, and they must be good managers of their children in their own households. Not said about the women in verse eleven. Similarities, differences. Now, here's the question about these things that are said. In verses 12 and 13, particularly 12, as requirements for the men, but not for the women in verse 11. All right? There's differences. They only pertain, these only pertain to the qualifications for the male deacons. Why? Why are these requirements for male deacons 
not listed or not needed for the women? Why must the male deacons be tested, but the women are not tested? Why is it that the, that the, that the, that the male deacons have to be one, one woman man, and yet nothing is said about the women? Why is it that they have to be good managers of their children in their household? That's not said about the women. Why? It's, kind of, it's really simple, actually, when you see it. Because these are characteristics that evaluate somebody for leadership, right? Tested because they're going to be leading people in the congregation. One woman, man, because they have to be faithful and trusted as leaders. Good managers of their children and their household. Because remember, that's the proving ground for the qualities of leadership that you're going to need if you're a leader in the church. So get this picture now. You have all these qualities of the male deacons. And then you have the women in verse 11, the same qualities as were in verses 8 and 9. But then he goes back to the men for round 2. And in round 2, what you have are qualities that only apply to leaders. Okay. Well, what's going on here? Well, the key to understand this is that, as we know, women cannot serve in positions of leadership in the church. That's 1 Timothy 2.12, among other places. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. So women can't have positions of leadership. Therefore, they're not going to be evaluated on qualities of leadership. Does that make sense? They're not, okay, whereas the men are. However, that does not disqualify or preclude a woman. Oh, that's just stated. I thought I had that. Hold on a second. All right, let me just say this. This is important. Okay, women can't be leaders. Twelve, Verse 12 talks about leadership qualities. So women aren't that, but they can definitely be appointed to service in a church. Does that make sense? In other other words, um, women can be appointed, for example, to teach in in the Sunday school, for example. Now, they're not leaders, but they're appointed to a service function in the church. That's the difference. And that's why you have qualities of service and the importance of it in verses verses 8 and 9 repeated in verse 11. Okay. A great example of that, I've mentioned her already, is Phoebe in, verse, in Romans 16.1. Again, she provided great service to the saints in Rome in a more or less permanent situation. Okay. So I'm concluding that women, in verse 11, does not refer to the wives of male deacons. Rather, it refers to women who assist in the work of service. Deacons, leadership in the work of service, women assisting in that work. And that's why you have the qualities of service in common, but not the leadership. All right. All right, well, that's just about it today. But I want to, those of you that may be struggling with this, um, I want to go through this quickly because I don't want to, you know, give you lots of extra information that you may not need at this point. But I do want to quickly go over some of the other reasons why Um, in my viewpoint, in the context, this is talking about women who serve rather than wives. Number one, we've already talked about this. The parallels between qualifications in verse 8 and verse 11, both having to do with service. But let's think about that word guni again. Now let's pretend, not pretend, but let's, let's posit that it does mean the wives. If that were the case, it would have been far more common to indicate it somehow. Like, how? Well, how about their wives? How about in verse 11 if it said their wives? That's all he would have needed to make it clear. He's talking about wives, not women. All right? Or the wives, even. The wives, meaning the wives of who? Right? But neither of those words appear at the beginning of verse 11. Hmm. Okay. Also, this is really, you know, this bothered me for a while. I said, wait a minute now. This is one of the ones that clearly opened my eyes to what I think this means. There's no parallel instruction regarding the wives of overseers. Isn't that interesting? If the issue were wives, wouldn't it also be true of the wives of overseers as well as the wives of deacons? i got to tell you something. The wives of elders were capable and are capable of causing just as much trouble as the deacons' wives. So one would imagine if this was qualities that were required for a wife, 
that it ought to have been up above in the elders as well in verses 2 to 7. But you see, there's a better explanation. That's not wives, but women. And that is that, you know, no woman could share at all in the work of the elders. Right? Why is that? Because they're leading, presiding, and teaching. Right? First Timothy 2.12, I do not allow a woman to teach. Well, then they can't do any of the, of the work that the elders are doing. I do not allow them to have authority over man. Well, guess what? That means that the women don't have any services or any uh, connection or any task that is associated with the elders, but they do have service that's associated with the deacons, which is why you'd want to talk about women in verse 11, but not bring up the elders' wives or women associated with the elders. All right. Again, a better explanation. No woman could share in the work of the elders. There's another one that I had to think about for a while. And that is, in verse 11, there's no indication that these women are married. Necessarily. After all, they're the same qualifications as the male deacons. But nothing in there about being married. Nothing in there that would indicate that they were mothers, right? Or anything like that. Or what their relationship was to their husband. If, if, if the wife could either qualify or disqualify her husband based on her behavior and character. Well, what's the most important thing that the Bible says about a wife? Ephesians chapter 5, anybody? What's that? Respect your husband. Wouldn't that have been a good thing to absolutely include if that was a wife? Wives must respect their husbands. That's not there. It's very interesting. By the way, in chapter 6, parents... Children have to respect their fathers and their mothers. So why wasn't there anything about children in verse 11? If they were wives and mothers, you really ought to be there. After all, it's there for the male deacons. Why wouldn't it be there for their wives? Because it's not talking about their wives. And related to this again, there's nothing in their qualifications that relates to their relationship with their husband or their children. Now again, let's, let's be practical. If, if you're saying, listen, the wives, they have, to, they have to measure up in a certain way in order for the, this man to be eligible to be considered as a candidate, wouldn't that, wouldn't that assume that somehow or other the man would have some manner of dealing with that in the relationship? So they, like I was saying before, if, the woman, if a woman didn't respect her husband and that was disqualifying, and then that would mean that the husband was not doing something, namely loving her, because that's how it works. Women respond, the wives respond to the love of the man with the, uh, with the subjection and the respect. But it doesn't say that. Therefore, I don't think it's the wives. Again, the children as well, as I mentioned. Nothing about children. I find that a little odd, right, that there's no mention of children when it's talking about the qualifications, the preparation of a wife. All right. Finally, and we've seen this, the placement. Again, why would you have three verses about male deacons and then put this about women in verse 11 and then go back to the male deacons in 12 and 13? And the best I can understand is that the, 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 the verses before, verses 8 to 10, are criteria that are equally applicable to women versus verses 12 and 13 only applicable to the men. So therefore... That's why he had to put it where he did while he was talking about qualifications that had to be true both of the women and the male deacons. And then when he was finished with that, then he moved on to the qualities of leadership that didn't apply to the women. So for all those reasons, I, I, I am confident that this is referring to women who serve but not in leadership roles, but have been appointed to serve in different service areas of the church. And women... Thank God you're here. Thank God you do serve magnificently in many cases. And this is pointed out. You can tie that into the qualifications in verse 11. If you want to be a, a woman who can serve, then go to verse 11 and understand that respectability and so forth. Temperance, all of that. All right. Let's get ready for the Lord's Supper. We'll close in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for allowing us to sort through the different issues in this section of your word relating to deacons and, and others who serve. We ask, Father, that we would uh, have that understanding translate into how we um, work with one another in the congregation. And, uh, Father, now let, please prepare our hearts 
for participating together in the celebration of the Lord's Supper where we bring into remembrance the death of the Lord. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, I invite the elders now. To, I mean, the elders, no. The ushers now. That'd be kind of cool to have the elders, but I invite the ushers now to come forward and uh, prepare the communion elements and pass them out. This morning in our message, we learned that deacons must hold firmly to the mystery of the faith. We saw that that mystery of the faith was really, the content of that was the mystery of the gospel. Well, in in Ephesians chapter 6, in verses 18 to 20, Paul addresses the same thing, but I want you to hear how he does. With all prayer and and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf. Paul asks for prayer. Why? That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness, there it is, the mystery of the gospel. Paul is saying that I want to go out there and I want to proclaim the mystery of the good news concerning Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. He wants to be bold in proclaiming that. So he says, verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, what, the mystery of the gospel, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And that idea of boldly proclaiming the message of the death and resurrection of of Jesus Christ is part and parcel of what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Again, mystery is the good news, the gospel of our salvation, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. We are commanded, really, to proclaim that message boldly. You know, I I, uh, get certain newsletters and magazines about the persecuted church, and I read about their courage. I mean, they have far more severe consequences of preaching boldly the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they do so willingly. And I don't mean to put a guilt trip on us this morning, but rather to consider that, you know. Perfect love casts out fear. And we have all things, we ought not to have any fear when we proclaim the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, We are, in fact, as we celebrate it, proclaiming the gospel message, just like Paul did. How? How are we to be um, preparing to proclaim the gospel message? The same way the deacons did. By holding firmly to the mystery of that truth that has been revealed now. What does that mean? It means to ponder it. It means to think about it, not just during the Lord's Supper, but all the time, whenever you're in the Word, to consider how that relates to the death of Christ. Consider all that's said in the Word of God about the meaning, the implication, the results of his death on the cross. That's how we hold firmly to the mystery of the faith. But today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we have a a special opportunity to exercise that faith now and to deepen it. That's the... um, Gold. That's what ought to be happening when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That we exercise faith in the death of Christ and his resurrection, but we also deepen it. Deepen it. Hopefully, when we, like for example, today, when we understand the proclamation of the mystery, that would deepen our faith and our understanding, the content that, that is, that is uh, surrounding our knowledge of the death of Christ. We do that when we gather together for the Lord's Supper. And we recall to mind what that death of the Lord accomplished. We consider it anew. And we make new connections to the scriptures we've been studying, as well as the service we've been engaging in during the previous days and weeks. For example, if we're we're in a situation where we've been called to sacrifice in a certain way for others, we can deepen our understanding of what the death of Christ means as we serve. You see how they they become connected. And that's true of a lot of things in our lives, of the compassion that we ought to have for the unbeliever. Similarly, right, we saw in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy 
that Christ died for all men, all right, of whom Paul knew he was the worst sinner of all. Well, we're all sinners too, and yet he died for us. Our sins have been forgiven, and we ought to have compassion, understanding for the unbelievers out there. That's another thing that's behavior and heart tied into our deepening understanding of the mystery of Christ's death and resurrection. And that, again, ought to be ongoing. You know, we, we ought to be regularly thinking about the death of Christ in our daily lives and how we interact with people. We ought to be regularly thinking about his resurrection from the dead and what that means for our witness, for our lives, and what that should, would mean if it were proclaimed and believed by others in our lives. That ought to be a regular day in and day out uh, aspect of our relationship with the Lord. Or to put it real simply, we ought to dwell every day in the simplicity of devotion to Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink the cup, we are really proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Let's close again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again today for all that you are, for who you are, for who your Son is. We thank you for this opportunity, this moment, when we can, with no distractions, simply consider the death of the Lord and what it means to us, what it means for the world. We thank you for that opportunity. We also thank you for the many opportunities that we will come face to face with in the coming week, in the coming weeks, in the coming months, where we also have an opportunity to once again exercise our faith in the death of your son by tying that together with the people that we meet and the service we provide. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Bible study Thursday. I do believe this may be the last week that we're going to be looking at the subject of eternal security It is a great summary. It is a great finale that we're going to be looking at because we're going to look at the ultimate question and the ultimate answer would mean why? Why did God save us in such a way that we would be eternally secure? Why did he do it? And then when we we see that answer to that question, believe me, it's going to strengthen and transform your understanding, your confidence your, your joy in the security of your salvation. So please try to be there. It's uh, 6.30 this Thursday, October 8th on Skype. And again, if you need uh, any information connecting, you can always email mark at lbible.org, um, except maybe this week where you should probably email me. Um, I'll give you my email address now. There it is. So this week, email me. I pray that everybody can get on without that. But, and then usually it's Mark, okay? At the end of that, and I, I repeat this every week because we need repetition on this in particular, which is we have a prayer meeting at the end. And the idea of that is to pray for particular things that you, we as a congregation, have people in our lives that are suffering, certain situations, certain good things that we're praying that would happen and so forth. And so... I, totally encourage you to give us your prayer petitions, all right, either by the box in the foyer or much more straightforward, just go on our website, lbible.org, and there is a, a button, I call it a button, um, that says, can we pray for you, down the bottom of the homepage, and you just click on that, you type in your request, and voila, all right. All right, so let's, uh, let's uh, one more time, speaking of repetition, we're 
always need to be deepening our confidence and understanding of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that begins and really ends with the content of the message, which is very straightforward, that we're all born sinners, every one of us. And yet God did not leave us in that condition in order for us to to die without him and go to the lake of fire. Instead, he gave us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. Jesus Christ went to the cross, a despicable way to die. And he did that for us. The Bible actually says he, he became a worm and not a man. Think about that. Think about the humility and the drastic, drastic steps that he took so that he could save everybody. Not that everyone will be saved, but Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, and then he was raised again on the third day. So that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have eternal life. Okay? So what I want you to do this week, if you could, if you might, is to find an opportunity and just proclaim that simple message. The simple message. We're all sinners. Christ is God in the flesh. He died for our sins, your sins and mine. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day by his Father. And now whoever believes simply in Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection will never perish, but has eternal life, which was demonstrated by the resurrection. All right? So try to do that this week. Because there's nothing like doing something that helps you learn it. All right? So please make an attempt this week to do that. All right? Just remember, too, on our giving policy that we... um, do not tithe, but rather we rely on the good um, hearts of people in gratitude um, to support our ministry. Um, you can do that. There is a box in the back. We, can, we receive mail, and also you can go online. Mailing address. I forget this mailing address now because you know how like today with email all these other things, there's few situations where you use it, but here it is. 4213 North Federal Highway. Pompano Beach, Florida, 33064. All right, let's close in prayer one more time. Father, we again want to just thank you for all that you have provided today in this service and our gathering together as one family. We would ask now, Father, that that would strengthen our hearts, that as we proceed through our week this week, that we would be able to reflect on all that happened here today, the singing, the message, celebration of the Lord's Supper, and that it would encourage us and challenge us in our daily lives. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed. Go out into the mission field. Right?